0: Good to be with you this evening. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John 10. And before we look to that text, let me say a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to gather and to consider the words and the works of your son whom you sent. Father, we pray that as we look to John chapter 10, that you would that you would give us wisdom to hear and receive the words of Christ like sheep. Uh, hearing our Good Shepherd's voice may we follow him Uh, may we honor him may we believe in him uh, even more firmly and more fully as we receive these words Father we pray that you would help us to understand the height and depth and breadth of your love for us that you would um, help us also to become more faithful communicators of these things to the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let, let me uh, begin by saying a few uh, introductory words. I, um, as we often do in this study, I want to remind you of what we're looking at broadly speaking. And we're talking about this this subject of Christology, the person and work of Christ. And we borrow that phrase, uh, the title of um, Steve Wellam's book, God the Son Incarnate, and we have really three ideas there that help us to structure our thoughts about what we're saying when we speak about the person of christ he's god he's fully god he shares in the one undivided being of god here we use uh, the words like being essence nature uh, as virtual synonyms that he is uh, by nature fully god yet he is god the son and here we recognize that Uh, Though he is one uh, with the Father and with the Spirit, he is distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is the Son because he is from the Father, the one who is begotten, not in time, but eternally begotten. And he works in a manner that is fully consistent with his personhood as the Son. As the Son, he does things that are uh, proper to the son. And so, for instance, we see examples of this in scripture when we see that he is the one who is sent and the father is the one who sends. He is the one who becomes incarnate, not the father uh, nor the spirit. Uh, he is the one who is um, who receives charges from the father, who receives commands from the father and who obeys those commands and charges of the father, uh, which the father gives to him. None of this uh, suggests uh, an inequality. None of this suggests that he is uh, less than the father in terms of his essential being, in terms of his um, deity. He is fully God and he is equal with the father. And yet there is that relationship uh, to the father as son, um, that he is the eternally begotten son who is from the father. And this is what distinguishes, this relationship is what distinguishes the father from the son, the son from the father, and uh, the Father from the Spirit and the Son from the Spirit as well. So we have that, those first two statements. He is God. He is God the Son. He is God the Son incarnate. That is to say that he became in the fullness of time, using that language from Galatians 4, in the fullness of time he became a man. In eternity past he was not a man. He became a man in the fullness of time, not by putting aside the divine nature but by taking to himself a human nature so that in his one person, in the one person of the Son of God, he unites two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. The natures are not divided. But the natures are not confused. We understand this to be uh, the biblical teaching that has been held by Christians for uh, throughout all the centuries concerning the person of Christ, which was uh, very clearly articulated uh, by the 3rd um, century uh, with great clarity in the creeds, but was not established then. And we, what we're trying to do as we continue with this study is to see that this properly does flow out of the testimony of Scripture, particularly the testimony from uh, of John's Gospel as we consider the person of Christ. We're also considering the work of Christ, and, and um, we don't want to separate these two ideas. We want to see that these two ideas are Necessarily go together, even though uh, in order to clearly define things, we must separate them. Um, we see that the work of Christ, and we'll see it especially in this ch- chapter in John 10, um, testifies to his person. And uh, uh, um, looking at it from the other uh, side, it is because he is God the Son incarnate that he can carry out the work that he was given. Here we put the focus on him giving his life for us as an atoning sacrifice. But we can speak of many other things that the son did for our sake, uh, uh, even as we put that that focus on his death and his resurrection and the atonement that he made for our sake. In this, we see uh, some paradoxes that reflect what we've said about his person, that he works by his own authority. And yet, at the same time, in accordance with the charge he has received from the father, that he has life in himself and he gives life to others but that that in his, that life that is in himself is also a grant that he has received from the Father. Um, that is, th- these things are true simultaneously and they seem, par- they're a paradox. They're hard to put together and yet they make full sense when we reflect on what we've said about the person of Christ being the Son who is eternally begotten. He is eternally from the Father. So uh, in that, with understanding that the uh, the, that eternal relationship one without beginning and without end uh, helps us to make sense of how it can be that he has life in himself and that he um, He uh, has authority to do things like lay down his life as we'll see in the text and take it up again and yet this can also be a grant that, from the Father, something he has received from the Father. Well, in any case, as we think about this, our unifying theme in this study, what helps us to, um, to bring together a number of texts from John's gospel is the theme of testimony. As we try to get at how it is that we know that Jesus is, um, that he is the Christ and that he is the Son of God, uh, that he is the, uh, uh, to use John the Baptist's language, uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, um, we rely on the testimony of reliable witnesses who bear witness to this very thing. And we've considered the testimony of John the Baptist in this gospel. We've considered the testimony of Moses, the prophets more generally. Uh, We could say even more generally the the Old Testament, uh, the scriptures, as they testify to the Christ, the things that he would do. We've considered the testimony of the Father. We looked at that last week as we looked at uh, John chapter 5 and uh, Jesus' discourse there. And today, what I want to consider, uh, maybe we'll complete this today, or if not, we'll complete it next week and bring a completion to this study, are the, uh, the works of Christ and the words of Christ, that is, Jesus' own testimony to himself and the works that he was given and how they also bear witness to him. So we're considering the testimony of Christ himself in his words and his works and two ideas um, have come together uh, to help us to kind of think about why this testimony is important, why it's important to consider this theme of testimony and witness. The first is that we trust multiple trustworthy witnesses when their testimony corroborates the test the, the one another, when, they're, when, when all of their testimony is um, uh, verified by that corroborating witness, corroborating testimony, We are disposed to trust them. That's true in our society independent of what the Bible says but it's certainly a principle that is laid down for us in scripture um, that you have where you have two or three uh, witnesses who can reliably testify to something independently of one another and their testimony agrees. We ought to um, trust that testimony. And here we don't have just two or three. We have a great multitude of eyewitnesses. We also have uh, those who uh, testified in the past, like Moses, who we are disposed to trust because he is a me- you know, very clearly a messenger sent by God. We think of John the Baptist in the same light. And uh, above all, we think of the testimony of God the Father himself. Um, and so we've got, we, we, we're looking at all of these multiple witnesses. And we've seen how in John's gospel, Jesus in his argumentation, John in his argumentation has relied upon this This principle. We also have that idea of prophetic testimony, um, which is not so easy to corroborate independently by multiple prophets or by, by multiple individuals. Uh, that is corroborated by means of predictions that then come to pass, and that's a principle that Moses laid down in Deuteronomy 18, which is a very important one, that when a prophet makes a prediction, and indeed it comes to pass, then you know that this is a prophet sent by God. We saw how that that even was applied in in the course of John's gospel to uh, John the Baptist's testimony as well, how the people recognized uh, as the gospel unfolded that um, John did no sign, but everything he said about this um, about about Christ has proven true as he made predictions concerning the one who comes after me so those are two important ideas of part part of why it's so important to reflect on the testimonies that John is uh, that John the Apostle is setting forward for us in this gospel. And today, I want to uh, f- I want to press a little further then, uh, as we think about the testimony of Christ Himself, um, that we are encouraged to trust His testimony for uh, a couple of other uh, further reasons. Um, as He, if we could imagine it, like He's stepping to the witness stand, as a uh, uh, to you know normally in our court system, um, someone who is uh, goes into court, does not have to take the stand. But here Jesus, in a sense, takes the stand. And um, and he bears witness concerning what he's come to do. Now, there's two uh, two things I want to consider as we look at this text in John 10. Is One is, we are his sheep if we are, be- if we are in Christ, or believers in Christ. And so, his testimony is particularly credible to us. If we are his sheep, as we hear the voice of the Good Shepherd we recognize the voice, right? Just like a child hears the voice of her mother and says, I know my mom's voice. I know that's my mother. And we recognize the voice of the good shepherd or even as I, uh, not so long ago, went to Constantine's and he called for his sheep and they started coming and then they saw me and they ran away. Um, But, uh, you know, the sheep hear the voice of the one who is their shepherd, the one who owns uh, the sheep. So we hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and we recognize the voice of the one who loves us, the one who would lay down his life for us. We recognize him in distinction from a hired hand, for example. And when we consider the work of Christ, we see that his work, the nature of his work in laying down his life for us commends his testimony to us. As we've come to understand what he did in going to the cross for us, we are disposed to trust him. What he said Concerning himself, Uh, as as people who are believers, and we seek to understand what what else we just say about him, we trust his word. We take his word for it because we know his (laughs) love for us, which he demonstrated for us in his work of going to the cross. Second, if he's the son of God and the Christ, as we'll see in this text, then we expect him to act in a manner which is consistent with his relationship to the Father, as son and in a way that is consistent with his title as Christ. What I'm, this is a bit more of an objective, right? That, that objective uh, evaluation of the, of the testimony, right? The first one is somewhat subjective in the sense that we hear his voice as his sheep. We know his voice and we recognize him. But the objective evaluation that is there for us too. And here we, that Jesus is going to put forward this argument. If he's the son of God, then his works should demonstrate that. And we're going to see the argument being made that because he does the works that are the Father's works, that he and the Father do the same thing. right? Just like uh, you, you think of him in his earthly life, he's the carpenter's son, and so he works prior to entering into ministry as a carpenter. And you say, oh, yeah, he's the carpenter's son. He does carpentry. That makes sense. Okay, well, he is the son of God, the son of the father, and so he does the works that are given to him but that are are the father's works. We saw that idea last week. We're going to see it again this week. We saw that that really prominent example as the father has life in himself so he has granted the son to have life in himself and that quality then is the foundation for his ability to do things like speak and bring the dead from their tombs and uh, so on we'll see that with Lazarus we can see that with Lazarus in chapter 11 but also as the Christ as the one sent so there's two ideas the son of god is the one who's from the father but there's that, that idea of being sent that there's a you know the, to be called the Christ corresponds to his humanity to be called the son of god corresponds to his deity so as the Christ the one who is sent by the father he keeps the charge he has received from the father and here's the idea of uh, being given a job to do and doing it faithfully, right? How do you know that someone is a messenger sent by God? He faithfully speaks the message that God has given him to speak. The false prophets in the Old Testament were not faithful. They weren't faithful to God because they had not received a message from God. And they spoke out of their own hearts. Right? If they had been faithful to God, they would not have done that. They would have not, not have said whatever that came out into their own mind. But Moses and Elijah and Elisha and... These, these true prophets, they were faithful to God because God told them to speak and they spoke. Right? They, were, they carried out the work in proclamation, the proclamatory work that they were given to do. We see that same idea here with Jesus to the fullest extent. God gave him something to do as the one who was sent into the world to be the Christ. He does it. He executes that task faithfully. So having said those, made those preliminary mark, remarks, Um, that uh, it's a bit lengthy of an introduction, but I hope it helps to prepare us as we read this text to think a little bit about where we see those things in John chapter 10. So follow along with me then as I read, beginning in verse 1. And I I will read at the end of the chapter. It's lengthy, but um, uh, if we we don't finish today, we'll take it up next week. Truly, truly, I say to you, i have authority to take it up again this charge i have received from my father there was again a division among the jews because of these words many of them said he has a demon and is insane why listen to him others said these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon can a demon open the eyes of the blind at that time the feast of dedication took place at jerusalem it was winter And Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I'm not doing the works of my father then do not believe me but if I do them even though you do not believe me believe the works that you may know and understand the father is in me and I am in the father again they sought to arrest him but he escaped from their hands he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first and there he remained and many came to him and they said John did no sign but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Well, As we look at the text, what we see, we, we, could, we could break it into halves, broadly speaking, that we have what we might call the Good Shepherd Discourse, uh, which begins with something like a parable. It's not the typical kind of parable that we are accustomed to where there's a kind of a narrative flow to it, but it's an enigmatic kind of speech. And this, uh, we should note, follows after a particular uh, miraculous deed where Jesus healed a man who was born blind. He did it on the Sabbath day. It, of course, as those, that kind of thing always did, uh, aroused controversy and um, led to the, uh, the, the blind man, uh, formerly blind man, being excommunicated from the synagogue and um, uh, confrontation between Jesus and some of the Pharisees. Well... This seems to continue directly from that final confrontation uh, where he goes into this um, this parable, and uh, which we see in verses 1 through 6. And we're introduced to some ideas here. The idea of a door and a shepherd. Uh, the idea of a gatekeeper, which is not as prominent, just a, a, a minor piece in the parable. But uh, the sheep also, which is um, a major element in the parable and then the the thief who the, the thief and robber uh, later we will be introduced to the hired hand and all of these uh, um, figures within the parable create an opportunity for Jesus to, uh, to, to uh, contrast himself with others um, and so you know it's, it's important to highlight those elements of the parables at, fr- at first the door the shepherd uh, the sheep and the thief and robber primarily we will also see the hired hand is a significant um, character in that second explanation. So you look at that first six verses where Jesus begins to speak to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and robber. So we're introduced to that, that first individual, the thief and the robber, and we're going to see him in contrast to the shepherd. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper really just serves to function as one who recognizes the shepherd. Um, the, the gatekeeper opens the door to him. He would not open the door to the, um, to the thief and robber. This is the implication. I don't think the gatekeeper has a really significant, prominent role in this that we need to uh, dig down and try to figure out uh, who he represents within the course of the parable. Um, the, the focus really is on the not the gatekeeper, but the one uh, to whom the gatekeeper opens that door, namely the shepherd, and seeing him in distinction between the um, the distinction between him and the thief and robber. So the gatekeeper opens to him, and the sheep likewise hear and recognize him. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. He leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. For they know his voice. So there's this knowledge. There's this recognition uh, within this parable. There's this connection and relationship between the sheep and their shepherd. And this will not uh, exist between a stranger and the sheep. As I said in that illustration from uh, my experience at Constantine's Little Farm. Sheep don't recognize a stranger. So they don't follow him. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. All right, so all that's pretty interesting, right? If you're there in that original context, you hear that. And, you know, if if it were me, I'm sure I would be among those who had no idea what he's talking about. Sort of like, you know, if you think about the parable of the sower. You stand there and Jesus tells this parable about the sower, but without any prior context, and without having read the interpretation, knowing it, you scratch your head and you just sort of think, what on earth is he talking about? I mean... It's very plain he's talking about a sower in that context. And here it's very plain. He's talking about a shepherd and sheep and and comparing it with robbers. But you just kind of scratch your head and say, what's the point, really? Why are you telling me about this? Um, And so that's what we see in the narrative is in verse 6. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus is going to uh, expand upon this picture to help them connect the dots and understand what it is that he's saying. So verse 7 through 18 then is the expansion where he's going to clearly uh, identify who is represented within this parable, right? So look at verse 7. Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And that's a really striking, It's really shocking because we're we're not yet thinking about the door as being significant in the parable. We think of the shepherd, but initially he introduces himself as the door. He is the door. And he's going to say it twice. You can see that in verse 7 and verse 9. It really emphasizes this at first. I am the door of the sheep. Now verse 8, all who came, we're going to have the contrast um, developed between him and the thieves and robbers. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Right. So he's not saying, for example, Moses came before him and he's a thief and robber. That's not, that's not who is included in all who came before me. I think that the, the better way to understand this is that all who came before me would, would be a reference to kind of like messianic pretenders. Um, you know, you might think of uh, the, the Maccabean Revolt around the year 164 B.C. Um, uh, uh, Judas Maccabeus, it meant Judas the Hammer, you know, led this violent revolt whereby they took back the temple uh, from Antiochus Epiphanes, who had desecrated it, um, had an eight-day feast, uh, which later in this passage, that feast of dedication, is that eight-day feast, or Hanukkah as we know it. Um, maybe there's a allusion there, or maybe there's a... Uh, John has a desire for us to make these connections. Maybe not, but there are other people we read about in the Book of Acts, for example, and elsewhere. There are these kind of zealots who who are messianic pretenders, and they seek to lead the people to conquer and vanquish the Romans and reestablish the kingdom, but they're not really the Christ. And um, they're just thieves and robbers. They lead, they lead off people to their own destruction. They are... Um, Yeah, so that's, I think, the the reference there. All who came before me is a reference to people who are something like messianic pretenders who aren't really the Christ. And those who are truly the sheep, they don't recognize them. They don't follow them. Some follow them, but those who follow them aren't really sheep within the context or within the understanding of this uh, parable. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. So there's the proof, one of the proofs at least that... uh, that those others were not uh, the Christ and creates the distinction for us to recognize Jesus as the Christ. Again, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now we have, we, we come to understand why he starts with likening himself to the door, saying I am the door within this parable. Because he is the one through whom we gain access to the father he is the one through whom we find life eternal life through faith in him by coming to him and so in that sense he functions as the door where the sheep can go into the fold and be secure and safe contrast that with the thief and robber who um, uh, who does not uh, who, who will see only comes to steal and kill in verse 10 the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy but here Uh, jesus is the one you go through him to the safety and security of the the sheepfold you go out to the uh, abundance life-giving abundance of green pasture right so he functions in this parable as the door and that's just a way of saying that uh, eternal life is is found by coming through him not apart from him Uh, the thief and robbers um, those messianic pretenders false christs cannot lead us to those things so you see this contrast. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, is contrasted with the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. Let me, before I move on, let me ask other questions about that idea. The, what, what Jesus is doing, the logic of it is creating that contrast between uh, himself and messianic pretenders who have come before. Between yes, Karen. Yeah, I think a false prophet would be an example of a messianic pretender. Yeah, so like if you think in terms of a uh, later language that John might, will, will use when he speaks about an antichrist, think of an antichrist as someone who puts himself in the place of Christ. Well, what does John say in his first <coughs> epistle? Um, you have heard that antichrist is coming. I tell you now, many antichrists have come. And who in their context are the antichrists? They're the false prophets who come proclaiming a false gospel whereby they deny the things that we're saying that are here are so important that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, who came in the flesh, those are the kind of the three cardinal doctrines that John puts forward in his first letter. What's that? A false messiah, a false prophet would be a kind of a false messiah. But but the ones that would be most that, that, that would be most remembered in the context in which the the first hearers are hearing Jesus say these words are those more the the zealots, the violent revolutionaries who tried to uh, you know, who would try to overthrow the Romans by uh, raising up an army and and, um, those kinds of things that you know, if you think of the disciples, Peter and, and others, that they expected Jesus to do and were really shocked that hey, Jesus is not doing these things he's talking about dying what's this you know that the, the, Peter's initial expectations would have been typical of many Israelites and um, yeah so for them false Christs in that initial context here is probably more like that uh, the, the, the king you know the picture of a king whereas later then you're going to see in the early church the picture of the prophet and um, since Jesus brings to in, within himself unites these offices of prophet priest and king um, we shouldn't be surprised that messianic pretenders can come in different guises under you know, each cat, each of the categories without being all three hopefully that clarifies things okay. well let's look to the second half of this discourse then the good shepherd discourse he, he's introduced himself as the door and now he's going to turn his attention to himself as the good shepherd um uh, I haven't put any stress on this idea of the, the, the I am. The uh, ego me in Greek is the, the the I am statements. There are many of these I am statements in John's gospel. Uh, some, uh, in a couple cases at least, where he uh, just says very emphatically, ego me I am, with no I am anything, just I am. Kind of a, uh, seeming, seems to be a very clear allusion to Exodus 3 in the burning bush and God introducing himself to Moses as... I am, but then there are all these other statements. I am the, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. You know, I'm the, uh, the, the, the living water, and so on and so forth. And we have, then four of those here in this chapter. But here we have the I am the door, and now I am the good shepherd. Um, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep. Sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. and The wolf snatches them and scatters them. So just like we had the contrast between Jesus as the door versus the robbers, now we have the contrast between Jesus as the good shepherd and the hired hand. He introduces a, a new picture that wasn't in the initial telling of the parable. And the hired hand is someone who it's just a a, a worker, just a wage worker, who is hired to care for the sheep, but the sheep aren't his. And you know he'll do the, the easy stuff, right? Get the sheep out to pasture, bring them back in. But if the wolf comes, this guy's not gonna he's not gonna stay and put down his lay down his life. He's not gonna be like David and grab the lion by the beard and kill him. You know, um, he's gonna he's gonna you know give up that day's wages and get out of town. This is the hired hand, and, and um, Jesus wants to paint this second contrast that shows us that he's the good shepherd that helps us to see why it is that he is um properly presented as uh the christ and or why it is you know that the sheep hear his voice and recognize him uh so we take this out of the out of the parabolic context and put it in our own context you know, when you hear verses like john three sixteen, for god so loved the world that he gave, sent his only son Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I think as believers, your heart, you know, to use that language from Luke 24, burns within you. When you hear language like 1 John, you find in 1 John chapter 3 and chapter 4 concerning the love of God demonstrated for us in the sending of the Son again. Concerning, and this is love, not that we loved him but that he loved us and gave his life for us. Your heart burns within you. It's, It's like hearing the voice of the good shepherd and recognizing his love and his affection for you and that speaks to your heart and commends him to you as one to be trusted and one to be believed is this is the idea is that he speaks of his love for the sheep his care for the sheep his commitment to the sheep to the point of even laying down his life for the sheep this distinguishes him from the one who is the hired hand commends him to us as one who is to be trusted he was a hired hand doesn't do these things he flees and the wolf is then able to come and snatch and scatter the sheep and that word snatching is going to be important later on as jesus speaks about his own ability to um, to hold fast to his sheep Uh, verse 13 he flees talking about the hired hand because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep they're not his own sheep he doesn't care for the sheep. He cares for the wages he's going to get, right? And his, he, he counts his own life worth more than the sheep. The good shepherd's not like that. The good shepherd cares for the sheep. They are his sheep. He gives up his life even for the sheep. So his love is evident in that. Now here Jesus, of course, is looking forward to what he's going to accomplish for his own. He's speaking about the work that he's going to accomplish and this is an important testimony to us when we think about the work of Christ. We're talking a lot about the person of Christ, but we need to think about the work of Christ as well. We talk about how, you know, when we talk about the work of Christ, we, you know, we, we put a special focus on the fact that Jesus died for us and rose from the dead. We can also then uh, expand our focus and think about his mediatorial work that he mediates for us before the Father. He intercedes on our behalf the right hand of the father he reigns all of these things that we speak about but we put that special focus on the atoning work of christ what he accomplished for us at the cross and what we see here is that john gives some greater clarity as he cites Jesus' words to the nature of that work one of the great debates that, um, that christians have had throughout the centuries concerns the nature of the atonement what did jesus do for us when he died upon the cross did, who, for whom did he die is the question that we ask. Did he die for the world? Did he die for only the elect? And the answer to both questions is yes, but not in quite the same way. This is where the debate arises. We look at John 3.16. We see, for God so loved the world, that he sent his only son. And Some then look at that and say, well, see, he, he, he died for the world. But we have to read that in a broader context. He sent his only son that whoever believes in him there's, a limit, there's a li- something limited then after that. He sent his son. There's the action by which God demonstrated his love for the world. But that doesn't mean that there's an atoning work accomplished for every person in the world. Because there needs to be that belief. So whoever believes in him then finds eternal life. But here we see there's a special focus on those for whom Jesus died in that substitutionary way. He died for his sheep. He died for his own. He died for those who he, he, he gives his life for those who hear his voice. And the language reflects uh, sacrificial substitutionary language. Certainly that that understanding does not uh rest only and solely on this passage, as enigmatic as it is, but it is certainly supported by this passage, as Jesus himself testifies to the nature of what he will accomplish for us on the cross. He dies for us in our place. Hired hand wouldn't do that. The good shepherd does that. He goes on to talk about that work, um, or to talk about his status as the good shepherd in verse 14. I know my own, and my own know me. Uh, this is what he's about to say is stunning. As he talks about, the, the, these, there's four clauses here that all use that, that the main verb is know. Uh, in Greek, it's gnosko. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Well, It's stunning on the one hand and, and, as he asserts something of that uh, 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 profound about his own nature as the son of, of the Father. That he has this, this knowledge of the Father that is uh, a uniquely, a uniquely intimate knowledge. We talked about this on Sunday morning, for instance, from Luke's Gospel. The way in which the Son knows the Father, the way in which the Father knows the Son, is unique and exclusive, this exclusive knowledge uh, of knowing one another. And yet that's also the, um, uh, th- 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 our knowledge of the Good Shepherd as his sheep and his knowledge of us. Is mirrored off of that uh, knowledge between the father and the son. It's just—it's uh, stunning to think about it that way. I know my own, and my sheep know me. This kind of—you know—you know—if you use that child with her mother kind of uh, uh, illustration again, if you take a child and, and the child is lost, and you say. Uh, you take that child, and, and you know, yeah. You, know, you find the mother, and well, how, do, how is this your mother? Yes, that's my mom. We need to verify this, right? We need to we need to prove that this person is your mother. No, no, no. The child knows who her mother is, right? There's that intimate knowledge that just you, you don't really need a proof for. You know, and the mother knows who her child is. Likewise, there's this kind of the father son, the intimacy of that relationship. Essentially, what Jesus is saying. Is is assuring to us when we think about well, you know, there's how can we prove these things to the outside world? Uh, That's one question. But how can we prove these things to ourselves? How can we know these things on our own? And there's a sense in which we know because we're his sheep, and uh, he knows us and we know him. And um, it, it, it does point to that that supernatural work, that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit produce such knowledge within us. Um, I know that's not going to be a very persuasive argument for the outside world, but it's not meant to be. It is meant to be an encouraging statement from our Lord to us. if we are his sheep, at the end of the day, how do we know that we can trust what he's saying? Because we're a sheep. We know his voice, and we recognize him. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the... um, um, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And then he comes back to that work. I lay down, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Uh, he goes on and says here, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. <coughs> He's clearly speaking about um, sheep that is people who are not Jews. bringing in the Gentiles. What I find so amazing and so striking as we think about the question of the relationship between uh, Israel and the church, the relationship between Jew and Gentile, is that it's obviously a complex debate, and I'm not saying I'm going to settle this question here once and for all. But at the very least, whatever we say, we must affirm what he's about to say here in verse 16 and 17. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock one flock one shepherd not two flocks and one shepherd one flock one shepherd one united people of god one flock i, I think that um, this is consistent with the testimony we see in many other places of scripture and it is a challenge and i i don't mean to try to settle it tonight but um it is a st- it's a striking thing for him to say uh, as he expands this testimony concerning the sheep that he will bring into the fold. We'll go up to verse um, uh, 18 and then we'll, we'll finish for this week and, and continue next week. But in verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. When he says, for this reason the Father loves me, it's not, it's not as if he's saying um, kind of like he had, to, he had to do this in order to earn the Father's love. It can sound like that at first, uh at first when we hear it, but rather it's it's saying something more um uh more important about the you know about christ's person and his nature especially when we reflect on all that we've been seeing about him it's that there is such a um unity of will there's such a uh, a closeness a unity between the father and the son that the son always does what pleases the father always obeys the father always uh, does the will of the father as we we saw testified in, in chapter five last week saying i can do nothing of my own accord but only what i see the father doing only what the father gives me to do there's that that's the nature of the relationship there's never any situation where the son decides i'm gonna i'm gonna be rebellious i'm gonna do my own thing or i'm gonna i'm gonna go off on my own that there's this consistent perfectly consistent obedience to the father's will um And he says, you know, for this reason the Father loves me. That that goes even to the point of him giving his life. Dying on a cross. That he my life that I may take it up again. Even the cross was not too much for him to do that which is the Father's will. For him to share the self-same will. So, this is why the, this is the reason that he gives. Why the Father loves him. Not as a uh, he began to love him because he agreed to do this, and he got to that point. But that eternal love that has always existed uh, and always will exist between the Father and the Son. The Son loves the Father. There's a, there's a symmetry and an asymmetry to this, I think, that we need to observe. The Father's love for the Son is... Um, it, you know, the reason that, that Jesus gives for the Father's love for the Son is that he does precisely that which the Father gives him to do. From the Son's standpoint, in a, elsewhere he'll say, um, I obey the Father that they may know that I, that I love the Father. Right? I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but uh, he demonstrates his love for the Father by doing what the Father gives him to do. And so you start to see how, even though they, the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father, it is expressed in ways that are consistent with, their distinctness as the father and the son. Right? Still, it's, it's within that framework of the father is the one who gives uh, charges to the son. And it's the son who is the one who receives the charge from the father and does what the father gives him to do. All of that, you know, the, the, the trajectory, if you will, is consistent with that, um, that eternal relationship between father and son. But in that paradox of it all in verse 18, uh, though he receives this from the Father, this charge to lay down his life and to take it up again, he does it of his own accord and of his own authority. And yet it's a, a, a it, it, it's a authority that is grant, is given to him, is received. I mentioned that paradox early on. It only makes sense that it can be, that both it can be true. That it is received authority and yet an authority that is in himself, uh, authority that he has to do it, That he can do it of his own will and of his own accord yet it be fully in 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 line with the will of the father if there is that eternal relationship that oneness that we see testified in this uh to throughout john and in this text uh, that eternal relationship between father and son just as we saw last week just as the, the father has life in himself so he has granted the son to have not just life but life in himself it only makes sense within that eternal relationship Um, Otherwise, it can't properly be defined as uh, in-himself life, uh, in-himself authority, um, ability to, uh, in in any case. So, uh, I acknowledge at this point that it it does get to a point where it goes beyond our ability to comprehend. Um, That's why, you know, I use that word, paradox. It's hard to uh, wrap our minds around some of these things, and it, it really is impossible to fully comprehend the being and the nature of God. And yet, we have that clear testimony to these things to be true, that the Son is fully God, uh, that the Son is yet uh, fully God, and yet, in a, in a sense, you know, dependent upon the Father for his being. Um, uh, how can these things be... Be true well there's uh there's the mystery uh why do we believe them not because we can fully understand them because we can understand what is revealed uh what, what he has made known to us and so we believe um let me stop there for uh, time as we we our time fails us but let me ask if there are questions or comments um from any of you Oh, that's. Um, Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, One of the things I would say, you know, we affirm that that he does. A lot of the uh, uh, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, I think there's a lot that's unrevealed to us. That's why some theologians have called him the shy member of the Trinity. Um, What I would say is one way. One way in which he expresses his love for the son is he always directs attention to the son right you think of the way he uh, the, the son, uh the father and the son send the spirit jesus promises i'll send you the helper and what it what is one of the things he'll do is he'll bring to mind the words that i have spoken i think that you know when we think about love love is something that we direct toward another person so we see just as the father um, uh, directs his love to the Son. It's almost like uh, we have to think about the giving this commission to the Son from a different light. He loves the Son. He gives him this this great uh, charge, this great and, and awesome thing to do. I think of the Spirit. He is sent, and he you know his mission, his 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 primary ministry is to do what to convict us of sin and. Concerning righteousness, so that we might repent and receive life, to to, uh, and and turn to the Son and worship Him and glorify Him, and by glorifying the Son, then we glorify the Father. The Spirit's not drawing attention to Himself; He's directing our attention to the Son. I think that would be a way to express His, uh, the way He He loves, in that active way, the, the the Father and the Son, by doing that which similar similar obedience, doing that which He's been given to do the glory of the, of the father through the glory of the son. That helps. Matt, you were gonna offer something? Um I will I'll ask you after. okay. It's okay if you unless it's gonna be like you know, be a stumper. No, I I'm just going back to you said the reason um you said for this reset the uh, father loves me. Yeah. expand upon that yeah so for this reason the father loves me because i lay down my life that i may take it up again the main thing i want to um i want to guard against is is this idea that somehow the the father's love is conditioned upon um you know it's conditional in a sense where jesus has to go and earn that love it's not it's not a it's not a given I don't think that's I mean I'm sure he's not saying that, but rather what there is you know that the father eternally loves the son and the son eternally loves the father but the the son is is uh, he re, re, um, relates to the father in such a way where he always does the father's will there's not a hint whatsoever of um, of uh, of you know any sense of rebellion or it's impossible to to even imagine that he could just do his what's of his own accord and so this is it's rather than saying you know as if like he goes and he 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 does something that will then make the father love him um, you know like Hercules and Zeus for instance in the the mythology like he has to earn that favor it's rather this shows the extent to wit of his obedience that he is obedient even to the point of death on a cross the extent of his his uh, his willingness to do the Father's will, even to the point of giving his life so that he might take it up again, um, and for this reason the Father loves me, he says, because that's his nature is such that he always does the Father's will, um, and so I think it just puts it in a different light. Uh, I think that an important um, way to see. So. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, uh, but I, I I don't know, I can't like, say that that's definitely wrong. I would have to probably defer to others uh, more studied than, than myself, but I, I would refrain from using that term of eternally conditioned. I don't think that's the way, I don't think that's the, the sense in which he's using this language. I think it's more in ter- terms of showing the extent of his unity with the Father in, in terms of will, that his... You know, so we have the one will of God. He, share, you know, he shares fully in the in deity. But now we have the human will of Christ and that um, he's so aligned with the Father in terms of his will and his obedience that even the human will of Christ uh, you know, doesn't chafe against that, that he's fully in submission to the point of death on a cross. Um, that full obedience is the Father loves the Son. For, for what the son is, for who the son is and what he is. And, and part of that is the, um, the unity of will. Um, we can talk more about that afterward. Um, I'll go and get the D.A. Carson commentary and we can look at the language. Um, let me close in prayer and then we'll take some time to uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we, we thank you again for your word and for your grace and goodness to us. Father, we ask that you would impress these truths upon our hearts and minds and even where they're very difficult to understand and very difficult to express and explain. For me, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, work um, to make these uh, truths known to, to us, to give us wisdom and understanding and clarity. Father, we we pray this prayer knowing that as we hear your voice through your son um, that he is our good shepherd if we are his sheep we will hear his voice and even if we don't fully understand every word that he says we recognize his voice we recognize his love for us your love for us in sending him so most of all lord we pray that you would confirm uh, these things in our hearts and our minds that we would trust you faithfully follow our Good Shepherd all the way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.